Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, usually I do a little bit of an introduction and introduce some bit of the information before the guest comes on, but I think we'll let him do most of the talking today. We know that mental illness is a problem and that anxiety and depression and other mental illnesses are becoming increasingly prevalent. There's reasons for that. But one of the underlying factors is that Treatment has been relying on old drugs and sometimes new ones that can have harsh symptoms. We've all seen the TV commercial with the laundry list of things you have to look out for when you're on some kind of new pharmaceutical. Today, we'll talk to Sean Singh from Vistagen. We'll talk about the new types of therapeutics and the novel way in which they're administered. So welcome to the podcast, Sean. Kevin, thanks a lot. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your audience today. Great to be here. Yeah, well, thank you for being here because mental health is becoming apparently an increasing issue. We see more and more of it in the spotlight. It seems like that the incidence is increasing, but is that because of increased surveillance and maybe more acceptance or sensitivity, or is modern life really causing more anxiety and depression? I think it's it's a both. There's no question we're seeing alarming increases in the prevalence of a whole range of mental health disorders. But there's also extremely higher awareness and, and all kinds of analytics and metrics associated with, with gathering data. But you know, look, the, there's no doubt that the COVID-19 pandemic, isolation, minimal social interaction, you know, people losing lives, devastating effects on people's mental health. And I often say the pandemic didn't create our mental health crisis, but it definitely magnified it. And on the positive side, if there is a silver lining from the pandemic, it's that it, as you said, it has shined a spotlight on mental health and in some ways has had a positive impact on opening dialogues in schools and workplaces and homes. It's sort of okay to not be okay because of all the obvious stressors that are associated with the pandemic. And we've done a, lot, a pretty good job in the last few years destigmatizing mental illness and allowing that awareness to translate into, into help and intervention, but still have a long way to go to destigmatize mental illness and make it akin to dealing with the physical illness, right? That impairs your ability to perform and be who you want to be. But no doubt also your last point about modern life, I mean, just take a look at social media alone. That has had effects on mental health that were never conceived decades ago. And we've seen some recent data from CDC in particular about teens in crisis. So it's, it's scary. At the same time, there's, there is hope on the horizon based on the national embrace of the problem. And typically as a country, when we see something that we need to fix, we do a lot of things to try to fix it. So I think the trend is going the right direction terms of trying to correct it, but unfortunately, the number of cases is still on the rise. When you say on the rise, how prevalent are mental health issues and what disorders are we seeing the most? 
Well, our focus at Vistagen is primarily on anxiety and depression disorders. And one of the things I noted recently when the president did his State of the Union was in his, his textual preparation for that, he said 40% of American adults report symptoms of anxiety and depression, and that the percent of children and adolescents with anxiety and depression, that's risen nearly 30%. So it's, it's troubling. And there's no question that we're seeing large increases in anxiety disorders, such as social anxiety disorder, depression disorders across the board, especially major depressive disorder. So these are definitely things to take, to pay attention to. There's about 24 million people in the U.S. that suffer from social anxiety disorder. There's about 20 million adults that report having at least one major depressive episode within the prior year. So 44, 45% of high school students say they've experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness during the pandemic that, you know, it's, it's definitely time for a call to arms across the whole entire ecosystem, not just the pharmaceutical community, but every aspect of that ecosystem to, to be galvanized into action and try to address these and change the trajectory of mental health. And I guess being a devil's advocate, I might say, well, okay, these are somebody's personal issues, issues to tackle with the family. How is it my problem? And so what are the social and economic ramifications in the broader sense of untreated mental health disorders? I think there are many. Beyond holding people back from reaching their full potential, I mean, the economic ramifications are huge. There's absenteeism, there's presenteeism, where people are at work, but they're not able to perform as well as they should. Those are major challenges. And people with mental health issues are far less likely to, to get married, to have strong social networks of support. So these are, these are significant unmet mental health needs. And when you don't receive the right care at the right time, it's going to spill over into all facets of society around us and especially the research around teens and certainly also adults with mental illness and substance abuse disorders. They have a lot of trouble engaging with other people at school and the workplace and overall the relationships are less healthy. So that spills over into all avenues of society. And usually when we're talking about mental health, we think about different types of therapy that are, are non-pharmaceutical. But when medications are prescribed, how are those working in the broader context and how effective are they? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. You know, the one thing we always know and say, there's no one size fits all solution for people with mental health disorders. Many of them are just very individualized and people with these various disorders, say anxiety, depression, you have different stops in your journey, different types of journeys as a patient, what might be impacting you in adolescence as in an activating trauma is, is possibly going to impact you differently when you're in your twenties or your thirties or even later in life. So meeting people where they are in their journey with appropriate talk therapy, which really always has to complement any medication-based therapy, it's a critical component and especially peer-to-peer talk therapy, which is what I think is tremendously effective, is if there is someone with a mental health disorder is speaking to someone they can relate to, they can trust someone who looks like them, is like them, has been through their journey, it's just far more effective than the disconnect that sometimes happens 
between a therapist, say, and, and someone who's talking to that therapist, if they're completely different in the communities that they come from, if their orientation is completely different, the benefit of that talk therapy is different. But I think it's access to that therapy is also important, right? The type of ability to access medication, to access talk therapy, those are essential components. But unfortunately, we know a lot about the current meds. They've been around for decades, and these are for anxiety and depression disorders, and the profiles are very well established, and many of them don't fit the type of experiences that people actually have to deal with. And there's long onset of action. There's a lot of rinse and repeat, meaning try one thing, it doesn't work. After six, seven, eight weeks, then you, for depression, for example, you go off that, wash out, try something else. So there's a lot of that. And finally, you know, people do land on things that help, but there are side effects, there are safety concerns with existing medications. So we really need fundamentally different types of medications for that part of the equation than what we've had and that are available now with current treatment. So there's just a lack of broad efficacy and, and there's side effects that are troubling and cause people often to abandon that effort, which doesn't get rid of the underlying problem, obviously. It sometimes makes it worse. So you mentioned COVID-19. And how has this really amplified the, I, I guess, the occurrence of, of mental illness? And, and is it really as bad as people are saying? Yes, it is bad because a lot of times, the, almost always, the mental illness that you really are trying to remediate is triggered by some underlying trauma. And, or it could be a series, the domino effect of different traumas that people have to experience that disrupt their routine. That, you know, if we all knew COVID was going to end at a fixed time, we could probably muscle through it with a lot different mindset than has been the case, not really knowing, especially in the early innings of COVID. So anything that, that disrupts your routine is going to impair many people's ability to to deal with their daily lives. And that disruption causes the anxiety, which can then lead to the depression, which then has a match set effect and sometimes leads to suicidality. And that's the thing we really have to keep in mind. These mental illnesses, they're deadly. The suicide rates are, are scary that we've seen increase, especially in youth during the pandemic. But I, I guess I could say this though, you know, the president also mentioned in that State of the Union address that COVID no longer controls our lives. And I think that's in large part true. But for many Americans that are re-engaging in school and work and just about every other walk of life, that's a relief. But for Americans with social anxiety disorder, for example, that's anxiety provoking. And as we start to see people go back to work, go back to school, be put in situations where they've got to interact with people, that's, that's scary. That's scary for a social anxiety person, a person affected by that disorder who is worried about being judged or humiliated or embarrassed in what most people consider and can handle as ordinary everyday situations. But if you are worried about being called on in a classroom or you're worried about presenting to your colleagues in a team meeting at work, or if you're anxious about talking to your boss about a promotion or you're unwilling to pursue you know, academic advancement, those are affecting lives, lots of lives. And so the COVID pandemic 
on the one hand, caused a lot of distress when there was loss of life, loss of job, loss of of housing, loss of a lot of different things. But it's 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 a mixed bag. You know, there are definitely some some people that were affected specifically by the pandemic and their mental illness was affected by the trauma induced by the impact of the pandemic. But there's also people who are tremendously affected by the re-engagement on the other side of the pandemic now that it's a little bit more under control, a lot more. Yeah, so you mentioned that a rising prevalence, uh, increased surveillance, we're more sensitive to this happening, we're getting rid of the stigma around it. But then we have these acute events like COVID and return from COVID, which are inducing even greater prevalence, unveiling mental illness. But then you mentioned all of our pharmaceutical interventions are kind of old. And what's new? I mean, are there, you see these ads on TV and stuff, but are, is the major battery that we use to approach these issues still old pharmaceutical agents? Very much so. They're decades old and, and they're really attempting to be one size fits all approaches to, to treating mental health. And you know, one comment back on that last topic we were on, which I think is important to remember too, and because I think is these were traumas that induced some of the mental illness and mental unhealth, if you will, that we saw over the last few years, the civil unrest, the political unrest, the geopolitical unrest, the economic unrest. These were things detached from the pandemic that we've seen in this country over the last few years, which I think also have contributed to these alarming increases in the prevalence of a very significant anxiety and depression disorders. And and to a certain extent, also other mental health issues, but those two, and then suicide on the third end of that, that match set, those are what's troubling me. And that's what's troubling our company. It's what's troubling the people out there that are practitioners, that are leaning on medications, old school antidepressants that take a long time to, to give you a signal about whether they're going to work or not. All along the way, you have to deal with the side effects that are associated with them. And if you are the lucky winner, great, because there's no question certain people can be helped, but many don't. We have a one in three chance of those drugs working. These are the old SSRIs and the SNRIs. If you start taking them for the first time, that leaves a lot of people without any benefit, yet they deal with the side effects, trying to see if they get that. So a long onset of action to tell you whether you're going to have a therapeutic benefit is one thing. Having to embrace the side effect profiles of these drugs that are generally all oral and delivered systemically throughout your body and have potential impacts on other parts and other medications that you might have to take. Those are two big problems. And there are other classes of medications, let's say for anxiety, benzodiazepines, benzos, a tremendous problem and worry there. We have a benzo epidemic in this country. The FDA came out with what's called the drug safety communication during COVID about benzodiazepines and the misuse, overuse, abuse of those drugs that are really causing amazing challenges right now, especially if they, even if you try to stop using them, the withdrawal effort is, is very traumatic in and of itself. So those medications that have been typically leaned into, we really need to depart from many of them in many ways. And that's, that's the mission we've got here at Vistagen is to, to focus on what are fundamentally differentiated, we call the mechanisms of action or the way that a drug works. And that's an important part of why we are excited and confident about what we're working on is because they do work differently 
than existing drugs. And so what we've seen so far is using the, using the nose really as a portal to, to generate behavioral changes that can improve people's lives. That's the mission. Perfect. And that's a great place to leave it off. We've got a problem and the solution can also be a problem. So we need a new kind of solution that may be dependent on the nose. So this is Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Sean Singh. He's the CEO of Vistagen. And on the other side of the break, we'll talk about Vistagen's approach that, that is really rather novel. And this is the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Sean Singh. He's the CEO of Vistagen. And we're talking about new approaches to treating mental health. And before the break, we talked about the problem of mental health and how it's increasing in prevalence and how the existing strategies to solve it fall short and even have problems within themselves. Now, the idea from Vistagen, they're drugs that are delivered as nasal sprays. I'm guessing that the nose may be some sort of direct conduit into the central nervous system where these problems begin. Is, is it really the, like that? That's it. You're absolutely right. The, the olfactory bulb, which is at the base of the brain, has direct connections to the part of the brain called the amygdala, which is the main fear and anxiety center of the brain. That's where overactivity can lead to a, an enhanced fear response and higher levels of anxiety. Lower activity may lead to apathy or lethargy or social withdrawal. So enhancing that olfactory amygdala a neural circuit may lead to reduced anxiety and depression. So different, we have two different approaches because obviously you're looking at two different um, end results. One is an anti-anxiety or an inhibitory effect and the other is an antidepressant or stimulatory effect. Okay. So are these getting there because they match with two different types of receptors. So the G protein couple receptors all over the olfactory system, where these are specific receptors that help us smell and, and taste. And are there specific ones that you're tweaking with specific compounds that are talking to the amygdala? You're right on it. Eventually they end up with, it's almost like a telephone tag game, right? So the, the receptors for what are called chemosensory neurons are only in your nose. And it's, that's why we have these drugs formulated as nasal sprays. And one of the big benefits that we've got with these two drugs, one for depression and one for anxiety, is that at microgram level doses, not milligrams, but microgram levels, we're spraying the, the active drug directly on top of those chemosensory neuron receptors. Those then broadcast forward to one interneuron, the olfactory bulb neuron at the base of the brain, which then broadcasts forward to the amygdala. And then there's GABA, GABAergic activity in the amygdala associated with the anti-anxiety effect we're trying to achieve. But you have a very short distance that you're traveling you know, from that mid-septum of the nose to, and not, without having to actually get directly in the brain on top of CNS neurons. 
So it's neural circuitry that we kick into gear when the drug is dropped directly on top of the receptor for those chemosensory neurons that have subsets of neurons in the olfactory bulb that then connect to the activity we want to see in the amygdala. So you don't have a drug like a pill that, as you know, you take orally, it gets digested, it cruises through your liver, your kidney, your blood, it gets up to your blood-brain barrier, it's got to go in figure out where it wants to go and not where you don't want it to go. So we don't have that kind of systemic uptake required to get the behavioral effect that we've seen in phase two studies so far. The other important part, again, is that we're not, we don't have drugs that bind to the typical receptors that are, for example, associated with abuse liability, dopamine, nicotine, opiate receptors. So The ability to be able to direct that neural circuitry just to the spot where we want to see activity and not off target is a very important aspect of the way these drugs were designed to achieve that effect and with the rapid onset effect. So we're not talking about weeks. PH94B, what we've seen in phase two studies, is an effect within about 15 minutes. So That is much different than a pill that you have to take to see systemic uptake and activity. Same thing with pH 10. Again, rapid onset, we're not talking about six to eight weeks, but it could be days, a week, let's say. So much faster to see a signal of a therapeutic effect than what you currently see out in the arena with current antidepressants and anxiolytics. And most importantly, you're not seeing a side effect profile that carries with it a risk of addiction and, and drug-drug interaction, things that are associated with systemic medications that people often don't want to take. And if they do, sometimes they're only taking it for a short period of time, that, and that leaves a lot of untreated folks. And we, we've had a little bit of an alphabet soup of different compounds that we're talking about here. So let's go after them one by one. What is a pH94B and how does it work? So think about a rescue inhaler for asthma or a migraine drug. The rapid onset on an as-needed basis is, the, is one of the key hallmarks of pH94B. That's a nasal spray. It's fast-acting. It's odorless. It's tasteless. It's in a class of drugs called farines, and those are administered, as I noted, intranasally at microgram doses because that's where the receptors are. You could drink the drug IV, inject it, it's not going to do anything. What you need to do is get to the receptors that actually can activate the neural circuitry. We're trying to kick into gear to generate the behavioral effect that we've seen in, in development so far. So we have fast track designation for this drug and it's yet it's a, a farine and it's a neuroactive steroid, we call it, that that when administered intranasally, kicks into gear chemosensory neurons that then project to the olfactory bulb and then again project to the amygdala. pH 10, that is, again, like pH 94B, focused on the psychiatric arena, the neuropsychiatric arena, and this one is focused on depression. So again, similar to pH 94B, it's a nasal spray. It's sprayed directly on top of chemosensory neuron receptors, a different subset Likely, we haven't fully cloned this receptor, but we know there's a different subset of chemosensory receptors that have an affinity for pH 10 that project to a different subset of olfactory bulb neurons, but still olfactory bulb interneurons like pH 94B does that then 
project forward to the amygdala and a couple other parts of the brain. So that's generating the opposite effect of 94B. That's a stimulatory or an antidepressant effect that's our goal with that drug. But again, rapid onset, meaning it's not taking six to eight weeks to see if there's any potential therapeutic effect. We've seen it in about a week and likely in phase 2B, we'll see it hopefully even earlier than a week and have that benefit sustained. The difference too is that PH94B is used when you need it, just like a rescue inhaler when an asthma attack comes on you. So before an anxiety provoking event, whether it's a performance event at work or school or a social event, could be that a diversity of things, situations that trigger social anxiety disorder for people is incredibly broad and diverse. But it's before those events where people need confidence to engage in those events and not avoid them and to not have fear and anxiety about them. And with PH94B being used as needed in front of those particular events, what you're trying to do is bring people down to a normal level of anxiety. Everybody needs some anxiety to be energized and focused, but you you don't want to put them to sleep. And obviously you don't want to leave them at a very heightened state where their ability to function and engage is impaired. PH differently, we, we see that being dosed on a more of a regular basis daily over time because that's the way depression manifests. It's not always acute. It more waxes and wanes. But say social anxiety disorder, it's episodic. And while some days you may have no events and other days you may have four different events at different times of the day. And so the flexibility for PH94B is that it can be used multiple times a day in studies so far. And it's got a rapid onset and a short duration of effect. But unlike, say, a benzodiazepine, won't put you to sleep, won't impair your functioning. You're not going to have a, a cognitive impairment. You're not going to see a risk of addiction. One of the important things we did with FDA so far was show them all of our data on safety. And one of the things you need to do sometimes is to do what's called a human abuse potential study. And especially if something is in the psychiatric arena, many drugs are controlled substances and scheduled drugs. And our belief is the profile from PH94B thus far in hundreds of patients has shown no potential for that kind of abuse liability that is worrisome with respect to other drugs. So again, a key hallmark always is to establish the safety profile as well as the efficacy and we think we're on the right track. So the thing that still might not be really clear for me, thinking about the mechanism, mm -hmm. are these binding to specific receptors or are these kind of impeding the constellation of G-protein coupled receptors, which are the major ones involved in olfaction? Yeah, they're binding to specific chemosensory receptors for specific chemosensory neurons. So they're specific to chemosensory neurons and the receptors for those neurons, which again, because they're only in the nose, you need, to do, you need to formulate the drug in a way that can get to those receptors. And the best way we have, and really the only way to get them to work is through the nasal spray. So again, the nose being, you, you know, it's similar, but not exactly the same, right? You can tell the difference when you smell fresh bread versus when you smell raw sewage, you're, there's different signals and messages sent to your brain. It's not exactly the same, but it is, it is similar in that trying to trigger neural circuitry that delivers an intended behavioral effect in via the amygdala at the end of the day. 
And doing that without having to go into the brain with the drug is, is key, especially to the safety profile. And, and with respect to the safety profile, we spoke about the idea that this is non-systemic. So you decrease the likelihood of drug interactions. You're using tiny amounts. So you have very little pharmacology happening outside of the target. And one of the interesting things I read about was potentially in the treatment of postpartum depression, where you have mothers that are breastfeeding who can really only select from a very thin number of therapies for anything, let alone depression. So th that was a really good application of this. Is there any other non-systemic applications that are particularly attractive? Well, you hit one for sure, postpartum depression, as well as postpartum anxiety. As I mentioned earlier, the drug, because it's dosed, it's dosed at microgram levels and is able to achieve that effect. And because it's dosed on top of the receptors, you can get away with those microgram levels. The typical Advil, as you know, is like 200 milligrams. So this is a, it's a fundamentally different way of delivering drugs right on top of the receptors that you need to be activating here. Postpartum anxiety, also lots of, uh, of new moms, 17% or so of new mothers battle anxiety. I think it's even higher than that. And postpartum depression, of course, similar consequences from what, you know, it's a positive event, but positive events also can be traumatic and can generate mental illness that needs attention. And certainly they don't, moms don't really want to lean into substances that they fear could harm their child. And we have not yet done a study in breast milk to see if the drug is detectable, but it seems likely given that it's not detectable in plasma, that you're not going to see it. You're not going to see it in breast milk either, but those definitely are two two areas of interest where we think a drug like PH94B and PH10, those could each make a difference in each of those two arenas. And what does the timing of these look like in terms of clinical trials or potential time when this may be a reality for people to actually use? It, you know, the drug development pathways, a long and winding road, sometimes with detours <laughs> along the way. The answer is, you know, we... It depends on how late stage studies go. PH94B, our objective would be sometime in the late innings of 2025 to submit our, a new drug application for PH94B for social anxiety disorder. PH10's behind it by a couple of years. It's entering into a, a phase 2B development arena near the end of this year. So. You know, we'll do things as efficiently as we can. It's not always easy. Smaller companies have other factors that they have to bring into play, especially as to funding. But there is a, there's a lot of excitement internally and across the spectrum of practitioners that we talk to, as well as patients that we've gone out and profiled these, these assets. So we'll do the best we can do and get them out as soon as possible. There's no, and not only to adults, but to pediatric populations where the need is tremendously acute as well. And each of our adult programs is also married with a, a pediatric program. And as I mentioned, a lot of the onset of these mental health disorders takes place in that adolescent phase as young as eight and is at often between eight and 17, we see typically for social anxiety disorder and with a mean duration of the illness of about 20 years. So it's a chronic disorder in different phases of the journey, but unfortunately, 
it's something that really needs attention and needs attention with way better medications than we've got today, combined with expertized talk therapy, where the, the patient can be met at there with someone who has empathy for true empathy that the speaker can understand to get effective talk therapy as, as an amplifier to whatever the medication can deliver. Now, the thing with novel technologies that I'm always concerned about is access. And this becomes really difficult in this situation because if this does become standard of care, would it likely be covered by insurance for the average person? Because insurance companies are always going to fall back on cheap drugs and traditional therapies and maybe talk therapy over some novel pharmaceutical intervention. So does this seem like something that, that will be another road that your company would have to navigate? It's always a road, no question about it. No one gets to avoid that pathway, but there will always be a place for older generics. That's a well-established maxim. But the other part of it is that so many people are clearly not getting the relief that they need from the current options. And insurers have typically been far more open to innovation in mental health. So given the rapid acting and non-systemic nature of our product candidates, I, we see them really as first-line therapies for many patients. So compared with other new treatments um, that we've seen, which have specific safety-related issues associated with them, very complicated wait times in offices, very complicated medical disposure, disposal uh, procedures, things that just can't actually be embraced by a lot of psychiatric practices, we, we see a very simple fit here. And if the safety profile continues to be what it is, and we see rapid onset activity and people getting back to the life that they have envisioned for themselves and they're active and they're productive, I, we're not worried about the insurance companies embracing that. We've already gone out and done some special groundwork with payers and, and see a place for what we've got. And I think the key is, again, the, as you noted, whether the be insurance or payer embrace. And that has a lot to do with how what you're bringing to the market is differentiated from what is already available at a cheaper price. And these are not medications that we're developing that are going to be priced to the moon either. It's just not the way, that's not the prevailing way. There are so many people affected by these disorders. We need to make them accessible across all demographics, all communities, because that's how mental illness is affecting people. There's, there's a broad demographic distribution. There's a broad community-based distribution that needs help. So that's our core goal, which is to radically improve mental health and well-being worldwide, because we know there's problems and challenges worldwide, especially with anxiety and depression. And that's our commitment. I mean, we're, we're developing products that are designed to make a meaningful difference in the way that people who think their life is impossible and to try to make their life possible in the way they envision it is really energizing component of our mission. And we all know one way or another, someone directly or indirectly that's affected by mental illness and can even imagine those people becoming productive members in the way they want to be in their lives. What a what an amazing change that would be in what we've got in this country. So one mind at a time is our objective here. Well, that's a really nice way to put a bow on this. Thank you very much for talking about this. 
So if people wanted to learn more about this particular topic, where would they look? Well, first, Kevin, thanks a lot for having me on today. I really appreciate being able to share some of our thoughts and our objectives and especially our goal to ensure equitable access for our product candidates should we be so fortunate to get them approved. To learn more, for sure, visit our website, visagen.com, and we have all the social, the normal socials, Twitter and the like. So we look forward to having a chance to speak with you as we continue to progress in these programs that we think can make a massive difference in the way people are able to live their lives in our country and across the world. No, very good. And I hope that when you have big breakthroughs, you use this conduit again to inform us about what's going on. It's a really cool novel therapy. Really like that. So Sean saying, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. My pleasure. And stick around for one quick second here. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes, tell a friend. And what's really cool is that our listenership continues to grow. And while there's many options now for podcast content, our Talking Biotech audience gets bigger all the time. That's really cool because it's people like you that are sharing the new innovations that get us excited about the future. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.